0: Hello and welcome to the AK47 podcast. 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kollontai. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I'm going to be reading part 4 of Alexandra Kollontai's The Autobiography of a Sexually Emancipated Communist Woman. And this is the part of her memoir where she is talking about the time that she spent in political exile and all of the different contacts that she had while she was in Western Europe after leaving Russia because she would have been arrested had she stayed. And so she ends up going to Western Europe and meeting a lot of really important people in West European socialist parties and becoming quite an activist. Uh, all the way up until the outbreak of World War I and then she becomes even more prominent. For me, the years of political emigration were hectic, quite stirring years. I traveled as a party orator from country to country. In 1911 in Paris, I organized the housewives strike against the high cost of living. In 1912, I worked in Belgium setting the groundwork for the miners' strike. And in the same year, the party dispatched me to the left-oriented Socialist Youth Association of Sweden in order to strengthen the party's anti-militaristic tendencies. Several years earlier, I fought in the ranks of the British Socialist Party against the English suffragettes for the strengthening of the still-fledgling Socialist Working Women's Movement. In 1913, I was again in England. This time, I was there in order to take an active part in a protest action against the famous Bylas trial, which had been instigated by the anti-Semites in Russia. In the spring of the same year, the left wing of the Swedish Social Democratic Party invited me to Sweden. These were truly hectic years, marked by the most varied types of militant activity, Notwithstanding, my Russian comrades also laid claim to my energies and appointed me delegate to the Socialist Party and Trade Union Congress. Thus, with the help of Karl Liebknecht, I also sparked an activity in Germany on behalf of the deported Socialist members of the Duma. In 1911, I was called to the Russian party school in Bologna, where I delivered a series of lectures. The present Russian Minister of Education in Soviet Russia, A. Lunacharsky, Maxim Gorky, as well as the famous Russian economist and philosopher, A. Bogdanov, were the founders of this party school, and Trotsky delivered lectures at the school at the same time that I was there. The present Soviet Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, G. Chicherin, who at the time worked as Secretary of Relief for Political Refugees oftentimes called upon me to hold public lectures on the most disparate cultural problems of Russian life in order to help fill the relief agency's almost empty kitty. At his behest, I traveled all over Europe, but Berlin was my fixed abode. I felt at home in Germany, and I have always greatly appreciated the condition there, so ideally suited for scientific work. But I was not allowed to give speeches in Prussia. On the contrary, I had to keep as quiet as possible to avoid expulsion by the Prussian police. Then the world war broke out. And once again, I arrived at a new turning point in my life. The next section in the essay is actually a section that had been cut by the centers, censors because here Alexandra Kolontai talks a little bit about her love life, which apparently they found inappropriate for a autobiography of a you know Bolshevik ambassadress. So she says... But before I talk about this important period of my intellectual existence, I still want to say a few words about my personal life. The question rises whether, in the middle of all these manifold exciting labors and party assignments, I could still find time for intimate experiences, for the pangs and joys of love. Unfortunately, yes. I say unfortunately because ordinarily these experiences entailed all too many cares, disappointments, and pain. And because all too many energies were pointlessly consumed through them, yet the longing to be understood by a man down to the deepest, most secret recesses of one's soul, to be recognized by him as a striving human being, repeatedly decided matters. And repeatedly disappointment ensued all too swiftly, since the friend saw in me only the feminine element which he tried to mold into a willing sounding board to his own ego. So repeatedly, the moment inevitably arrived in which I had to shake off the chains of community with an aching heart, but with a sovereign and uninfluenced will. Then I was alone again. But the greater the demands life made upon me, the more the responsible work waiting to be tackled, the greater grew the longing to be enveloped by love warmth and understanding all the easier consequently began the old story of disappointment in love the old story of titania in a midsummer night's dream now i love that little passage because basically you know she's admitting to the fact that she had several lovers during this period of time while she's in exile and they all sort of disappointed her because they wanted her to be you know their little woman or whatever to she says to mold her uh, into a willing sounding board for their egos which i think is a really interesting turn of phrase Obviously, she, you know, did not get married again. She did have some serious relationships, but she only ever had this one child. Uh, She eventually marries again after the revolution. But during this period of time, she's basically living out a very independent life for herself, which also means heartbreaks. And she says, yes, I did this thing. I met these men. I had these relationships. They were always disappointment disappointing and then I was alone again and then the more I worked then I got lonely and I wanted to be in a relationship and it was just sort of this endless cycle which she feels like in some ways she wasted a lot of her energy on these romances Um, and then she suddenly just goes back to discussing her you know activities around the war so the outbreak of the world war found me in Germany. My son was with me. We were both arrested because my identity papers were not in order. During the House search, however, the police found a mandate from the Russian Social Democratic Party appointing me as delegate to the World Congress of Socialists. Suddenly, the gentleman from Alexanderplatz became utterly charming. They figured that a female Social Democrat could not be a friend of the Tsar and consequently certainly not an enemy of Germany. They were right. I was, in fact, no enemy of Germany, and I was still less a Russian patriot. To me, the war was an abomination, a madness, a crime. And from the first moment onwards, more out of impulse than reflection, I inwardly rejected it and could never reconcile myself myself, with it up to this very moment. The intoxication of patriotic feelings has always been something alien to me. On the contrary, I felt an aversion for everything that smacked of super patriotism. I found no understanding for my anti-patriotic attitude among my own Russian party comrades who also lived in Germany. Only Karl Liebknecht and his wife Sophie Liebknecht and a few other German party comrades like myself espoused the same standpoint and, like myself, considered it a socialist duty to struggle against the war. Strange to say, i was present in the reichstag on august 4th the day the war budget was being voted on the collapse of the german socialist party struck me as a calamity without parallel i felt utterly alone and found comfort only in the company of the Leibniz. now of course for those of you who don't know what she's talking about is the fact that the german socialist party which was democratically elected to the Reichstag, voted war credits to the Kaiser, uh, you know, when World War I broke out. So they went from being socialists to German nationalists very quickly, and this was a very calamitous moment for Kolontai, who believed in socialist and communist internationalism. With the help of some party friends, I was able to leave Germany with my son in August of 1914 and emigrate to the Scandinavian peninsula. I left Germany not because I had felt the slightest manifestation of unfriendliness towards me, but only for the reason that without a sphere of activity, I would have been forced to live in idleness in that country. I was impatient to take up the struggle against the war. After arriving on Sweden's neutral soil, I immediately began the work against the war and for the international solidarity of the world working class. An appeal to working women made its way along illegal channels to Russia and to different other countries. In Sweden, I wrote and spoke against the war. I spoke at public meetings, most of which had been called by the left-leaning, world-famous Swedish party leaders Zeta Höglund and Fredrik Stron. I found in them the pure echo of my ideas and feelings, and we joined forces in a common task for the victory of internationalism and against the war hysteria. It was only later that I learned of the attitude which the leading minds of the Russian party had taken toward the war. When the news finally reached us by way of Paris and Switzerland, it was for us a day of ineffable joy. We received assurances that both Trotsky and Lenin, although they belonged to different factions of the party, had militantly risen up against the war. Thus, I was no longer isolated. A new grouping was proposed in the party the internationalists, and the social patriots. A party periodical was also founded in Paris. In the middle of my zealous activities, however, I was arrested by the Swedish authorities and brought to the Krungsholm prison. The worst moment during this arrest was born of my concern over the identity papers of a good friend and party comrade, Alexander Shlapnikov, who had just arrived illegally in Sweden from Russia, which I had taken over for safekeeping. Under the eyes of the police, I managed to hide them under my blouse and somehow make them disappear. Later, I was transferred from the Krungsholm prison to the prison in Malmö and then banished to Denmark. As far as I know, I was one of the first of the European socialists to be jailed because of my anti-war propaganda. In Denmark, I continued my work, but with greater prudence. Nevertheless, the Danish police did not leave me in peace. Nor did the Danish Social Democrats exhibit friendliness for the internationalists. In February of 1915, I emigrated to Norway, where together with Alexander Shlapnikov, we served as a link between Switzerland, the place of residence of Lenin and of the Central Committee, and Russia. We had full contact with the Norwegian socialists. On March 8th of the same year, I tried to organize an international working women's demonstration against the war in Christiania, now Oslo, But the representatives from the belligerent countries did not show up. That was the time when the decisive rupture in social democracy was being prepared, since the patriotically minded socialists could not go along with the internationalists. Since the Bolsheviks were those who most consistently fought social patriotism, in June of 1915, I officially joined the Bolsheviks and entered into a lively correspondence with Lenin. I again began to do a prodigious amount of writing, this time for the international-minded press of the most different countries—England, Norway, Sweden, America, Russia. At this time, one of my pamphlets, Who Profits from the War, appeared. Deliberately written in a very popular view, it was disseminated in countless editions in millions of copies and was translated into several languages, German included. So long as the war continued, the problem of women's liberation obviously had to recede into the background, since my only concern, my highest aim, was to fight against the war and call a new Workers International into being. In the autumn of 1915, the German section of the American Socialist Party invited me to journey to America to deliver lectures there in the spirit of Zimmerwald, a gathering of international-minded socialists. I was immediately ready to cross the ocean for this purpose, despite the fact that my friends determinedly advised me against it. They were all deeply worried about me because the journey had become very hazardous as a result of submarine warfare. But the aim enticed me enormously. My propaganda tour in the United States lasted five months, during which time I visited 81 cities in America and delivered lectures in German, French, and Russian. The work was extremely strenuous, but also as fruitful, and I had warrant to believe that as a result the internationalists in the American party were strengthened. Much opposition to the war, passionate debates, also existed overseas, but the police did not bother me. I will stop right here for this section of the essay, and I wish in many ways that Kolontai had written more about her time in the United States. I, doing some own, my own independent research, I actually managed to find some newspaper articles and posters announcing her lectures in the United States. She did give uh, an awful lot of lectures around the country. As you know, I think I've said this in other episodes, she spoke very good English because she had a British governess when she was young and obviously she spent some time in England. And she also spoke German and French and Russian, and so she was able to speak to a lot of different audiences. She was obviously very opposed to World War One, and she made quite a you know sensation in the United States while she was here. Uh, she actually ends up coming back later, and she goes to New Jersey uh, with her son for a little while before she heads back to Russia. But I think it's really interesting to realize how. Widely, she traveled in this period before and during World War I and how exceptionally, you know, famous and active she was as a political orator and as a writer. This pamphlet, you know, Who Profits from the War, was circulating in millions of copies in lots of languages. So in many respects, Kolontai really was a, a pretty prominent political activist, you know, prominent enough to get invited for a lecture tour to the United States. And I think that, you know, she really kind of comes into her own politically before she joins the Bolsheviks in 1915, which she talks about when she finally decides that Lenin and Trotsky are right to, uh, I mean, obviously they're coming from different sides of this equation, but, but she decides to go with Lenin to the, join the Bolsheviks because she her opposition to the war and her commitment to internationalism is more important than you know party divides and obviously of course Trotsky eventually also becomes a Bolshevik as you know so that's it for this episode Thanks so much for listening. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK47 podcast, 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. Please share this podcast with your friends on social media, like, rank, rate, whatever it is that you do, and make sure you keep up the good fight. Thanks.